good afternoon on this third day. We're almost halfway through unleavened bread already. And I'm sure you've gotten rid of at least half your sins by now. I joke. Am I being sarcastic or hopeful? I don't I don't know. <laughs> we work at it. Well, we have the afternoon, some of us, free. Uh, we have a big sit-down dinner this evening, so I know some of you are not going to have a free afternoon. <laughs> Be busy getting everything ready for this evening. I look forward to that very much. Uh, and on Tuesday, we'll have a kind of a potluck picnic after the uh, service in Zion on Tuesday morning. Uh, we shoot for 11 o'clock for the service there. I think that's what I put on the schedule. And uh, we can just have a picnic there in the park. I think would be really nice. And then you can have the afternoon to explore Zion or whatever, do what you wish within the law. Oh, and tomorrow we have scheduled a Jerusalem tour. But have decided to postpone that. Uh, I suspect there'll probably be wind up there. I'm trying to save my eyes as much as I can to speak and read, and I'm afraid if I go up there tomorrow and get wind in them all day, I'd be blind by morning. So uh, we'll postpone that. I think the only one here maybe, uh, well, not the only one, but the main one not to have seen things up there would be Minerva, and she's staying a few days after Unleavened. So after we get past where I have to read, the eyes won't matter quite so much, and I can can uh, have a little tour up there. And if there are others that want to go, we'll try to pick a day a day or two after Unleavened. Uh, it doesn't look like it's going to be too windy, maybe. And uh, then those who want to go, we can... Uh, we can figure that out. Uh, be during during the week, of course, which makes it a little more difficult. But uh, I think most of you working have have seen anyway. So mainly the ones that I would target would be those who haven't seen all those things. They're quite amazing, really, as you all know. All right. Apart from that, I found myself the last couple of times I've spoken, mentioning Egypt, and then I would change it to Mitzrium, and go kind of back and forth, and say it really should be Mitzrium instead of Egypt, and maybe that's a little confusing for some, why does it matter whether it's Egypt or Mitzrium? And there's quite a little here that truly becomes important in understanding prophecy, in understanding who has done what in history, because the world history you studied in school uh, isn't very good, wasn't very good. Good thing you made a D instead of an A. Maybe you didn't get too much of it the way they taught it. But uh, there's just an awful lot. Now, I won't say... <coughs> But the whole world is ignorant of world history. I believe that there are certain people in certain places who understand a whole lot more than they have told. They have hidden 
certain things because of their agenda. And, for instance, Columbus, a crazy story that he was trying to get to India to trade, he had maps of this continent. He was coming here to look for the hidden, buried treasures of the Incas, the Aztecs, the Israelites. Uh, they knew. And they had been here. And the king of Spain had even buried some treasures here, or the Spanish who were mining here. So there was a lot that was going on that we don't know about as a result of studying history in school. During the days of Solomon, for instance, it talked about his ships going around the world in trade, and how it took three years to make the circuit around the globe to do trade. And it mentioned different places where he'd gotten different things, peacocks and various things here and there. Uh, and if you do a study on it, you'll find quite a bit of shipping going on in the Old Testament record. So, how did those ship captains circle the earth on a trading mission in three years if they didn't know about where big old continents were? <laughs> you know, it just doesn't make sense the way they tell it. So, it's a, it's a cock and bull story that uh, Columbus was coming over here. He was flying the, the red flag of the, I can't ever say their names, uh, the ones, the French, who had been kicked out and the Pope was trying to kill, and they had great treasures and brought them over here from France and buried them in the same place. The treasures had been buried for a long, long time. Uh, they knew basically where it was. Joseph Smith knew that the treasures that had been being sought were in southern Utah south of the Salt Lake, he said. And there is indication that he had been taught by some Jesuits about that. So, in spite of the fact he thought that the Garden of Eden had been in Missouri, uh, he sent the Mormons out here uh, to find the treasures. John Wesley Powell was supposedly uh, surveying the land for mapping. And he may have done some of that, but he was looking for the treasures. He was trying to beat uh, Brigham Young to them. And Brigham Young stood right there in Hurricane and said, The greatest treasures ever known to man are within 50 miles of where he was standing. I don't believe they are, as the crow flies. So there was a lot understood by a lot of the ancient peoples, but isn't in our little record that we want people to know. And the Smithsonian Institute has covered up enormous amounts of information about Israelite presence here way back that are buried in shells in Ohio and different places. So there was an awful lot known about this continent that you didn't learn in school. And we piece it together a bit at a time. But let's go back and understand, because Hollywood doesn't get it, if you watched the Ten Commandments movie years ago, uh, what color were the Egyptians? 
kind of whitish folks, maybe a little golden colored. Uh, is that what they really were? What does God say? There are a lot of things like that that are not known, and if they were known, it would make a lot of difference in our perception about a lot of things that have occurred and that are now today occurring, because the Bible identifies a lot of the nations that are in play right now today. And I want to go into some of that. Maybe it's a little technical. I don't like to get into technical things too much. I mean, obviously, the overall thing is love God above everything and your neighbors yourself. That sums up an awful lot, and a lot can be said about that. But there are some of these other things that affect our understanding that are certainly important. In the days of Adam and Eve, only two people were created, right? And this is speculation to some degree, but I, I think the logic fits. I've, I've heard it from others as well. But when God created Eve, uh, the seeds for all her children were uh, created within her because there were various races of people who came from Adam and Eve. Therefore, the genetic makeup had to have been there for those races to have come uh, just from uh, Cain and Abel and Seth and daughters and the children that those two had. So probably uh, that was the way God did it. I don't know that for sure. And it really doesn't make any difference as, as we come on down. But we know that when Noah came along, 1,600 years later, the earth was very, very violent, and God had had all he could take of it. And he thought about destroying man entirely, and then he saw Enoch had been righteous, Noah was a man who was serving God, and he decided, okay, I'll preserve it. Now, he wouldn't have been wrong did he just wipe us all out then would he has mankind evolved over the years into pretty much the same condition they were in in Noah's day over and over throughout history so mankind's record on this earth is pretty bad overall and you look at it today and it's pretty bad now, there's been speculation, and I believe it's probably true, that in that roughly 1,600 years from the time of Adam and Eve down until the Ark of Noah, mankind had probably advanced technologically as far, or about as far, as we have today. Uh, there have been things that have been uh, dug up, such as rudimentary com, uh, computers, such as information that people were doing very, very delicate brain surgery, and they found the equipment used and so on. There have been a lot of things like that that have turned up, and the governments of the world, the Mormon church in this area, have taken those and hidden them and put them away so that nobody would know what really went on and they could preserve their search for the treasures. Uh, 
Well, these things have been known about all along. I, I think I told you even just recently, maybe I didn't finish the story, that I met a man who had a big herd of goats, and I was herding goats and, and uh, talked with him quite a bit. And he had been a child in World War II, and his dad and he were in Zion Park. And they met Germans there, spoke good German and English, and they even related to them that Hitler had sent them over here to find the world's treasures in southern Utah. So Hitler knew something from somewhere. All these different peoples have had records that you and I have not seen that they have looked at and then come and try, tried to find what they were reading about. Columbus and various others. Now, could people really have been that technologically advanced? Why not? All the things that are in the ground that we have used and mined out of the ground to produce what we have produced technologically were there then. And I submit to you that people were probably a whole lot smarter back then than we are. They had only been created with really good minds a generation or two away, had not degenerated and eaten poor foods and all kinds of stuff that people have done the last 6,000 years, I suspect our IQ levels and our overall intelligence is a whole lot lower than it was back then. We have not evolved to become better and better and smarter and smarter. We have devolved to get dumber and stupider. If there's any kind of evolution, it's downward, not upward. And I wouldn't call it evol devolution. Well, devil, evolution, maybe so. But degeneracy, let's put it that way. How long did it take us in our degenerate state to go from horse and buggy to space satellites and manned flight into orbit? Less than a hundred years. Less than a hundred years. When it was allowed to start the Industrial Revolution, I mean, in the 1860s, 70s, 80s, people were still riding horses and then buggies. We had our Pony Express. We didn't have trains yet. I don't know when the first train ran, but sometime in the 1800s, I guess. And then the car wasn't developed until the late 1800s. And the first manned flight was 1903. And we had jet airplanes 50 years later fighting wars. Less than a hundred years. Why couldn't they have done the same thing? And God may have realized that they were so violent and so degenerate after 1600 years. And they didn't die either. You know, that knowledge to them was cumulative. If a man is going to live a thousand years, he's going to learn and keep learning and learning and learning. And he won't forget all that. So, why wouldn't that intelligence and that knowledge gained in that period of time be used to do some of the things we've done? They weren't Stone Age. Some people would have us believe they were, but they weren't. 
So anyway, whatever happened then happened, and God destroyed it. So he started over after the flood with Noah and his three sons and their wives and Noah's wife. He had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And we have a table of nations in Genesis 10 and 1 Chronicles 1 that show us who came from each one of those sons. And some of the names are still recognizable for this day and important for us to understand in identifying certain nations and what the Bible says they're going to do. So this becomes important to know who is who and where is who. I do believe that the earth was in one piece uh, the way God created it. One continent, and the rest was sea. It says in Genesis 10, and we'll probably read over it a little bit, that the earth was divided in the days of Peleg, uh, and Peleg was the fourth generation after Noah actually fifth from Noah, uh, but it talks about the nations being settled, the peoples divided, uh, after three generations. So when it says the earth was divided, it's not necessarily talking about people, but about the earth itself. If you look up the Hebrew word, and divided just means split apart, divided. Uh, also, uh, mankind was divided in the days of Nimrod, a little further down the road, because of what, technologically, they were already talking about going to God's throne. I think Nimrod realized he couldn't build a skyscraper tall enough to go to God's throne. They must have been doing some technological development that had been remembered from before. See, Noah saw those things. Shem, Ham, and Japheth and their wives saw those things. And that was that knowledge was carried through. Noah lived for, what was it, 300 years after the flood, something like that. I don't remember exactly. And Shem lived and knew Abraham. They were still living up to 500 years, even after the flood for a while. And then later God reduced it to 250. And he finally began to realize about 70 is plenty <laughs> for us. We, we don't really need any more than that to learn what we need to learn and do what we need to do. And to come up in a second resurrection and be taught the truth. We don't need to live a thousand years here. But anyway, Nimrod had aspirations of taking over God's throne. Where did he get that idea, I wonder? From Satan the devil who had tried the same thing. So Satan was using man to try to accomplish what he himself had failed at. And he still has man doing that to this very day. They want a one-world government ruled over by Satan. And he's going to make another attempt to take over God's throne. And be put down once and, well, second and for all, I guess you'd say. So... Nimrod probably understood a lot of technological stuff, and just the memory of it would plant the desire to recreate it. Don't men do that? If you had something, you don't like change. 
So if you lose something, you try to get it back in some form or another. It's like with the church being blown apart. We had worldwide as it was, and it was comfortable, and we liked it. So when it got blown apart, what did men do? They tried to build back exactly what they had had. That was what was comfortable. So mankind has always done this, no matter what era we're talking about. They don't like change. They want to go back to what they had. And Nimrod listened to these stories and thought, we can do this. Now, we've built some pretty tall buildings here on the earth, but you know what? They're pretty limited. You're going to go up so far. If you're going to go to God's throne, you've got to have some other way of doing it. We'll build to heaven. The Bible doesn't give us a whole lot of information there, but that should give us enough to know that he had, a, he had aspirations of world rule and universe rule that he had gotten from his father, the devil. Now, to piece these things together a little bit, what do you think when you hear, which I did recently, that they discovered a city <clears throat> under the ocean floor? Buildings down there. And this has happened over the last 30, 40 years, 50 that I can remember, where they think, well, maybe this is the lost city of Atlantis. Maybe this is this. Maybe this is that. And even over in the Mediterranean, they have uh, things made by man that are under the sea. I've heard about those things all my life, and they're still discovering them. Well, if the world was one continent, and man had built all over it, and it was divided, the continents were split apart, a lot of it, sunk. Now you can look at the continents, the coast of uh, Africa, the coast of South America, uh, kind of fit roughly together. But if you go below that into the water down to the continental shelves, they match up beautifully. You can't see that without aerial photography or whatever, but they've been able to map those things, and it's does indeed appear that they were at one time together. So, when they were divided, the continental shelf was down lower. If there had been buildings, cities, on that shelf, when it was divided and moved apart, the cities would have sunk. So, it shouldn't... I mean, I... I, I see things where people say that this was done by fallen angels and all this kind of stuff. Why? There was one piece and divided in the days of Philae. A lot of it sunk. Still there. Can be found. Is being found. So it shouldn't shake us to think, well, God said it was 6,000 years since he created man. Uh, how did all this stuff happen apparently before that? Well, it wasn't before that. It's just the continents didn't drift apart over billions of years. It was divided in the days of Peleg, the Bible says. Simple. He just shoved it apart. He can do stuff like that. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 10. 
in theory, he talks about what was happening right after Noah uh, and the flood and gives a table of nations of who came from whom. But before we get into that in detail, let's speculate a little bit, and I, this is the best information I've come up with so far, and I don't know for sure that it is absolutely true. But how did the peoples get where they are today uh, on the continents that they're on? How did it begin? All right. Noah built the ark, and it floated. And it rained, it rained, and then it, the depths of the earth were opened up, and that could have changed some things as well from the way they are were until what they became today. But we have come to understand and to realize that the Garden of Eden and ancient Israel, the time of the creation, were here in southern Utah. The, the Navajos know it, the Utes know it, the Hopis know it. They all claim this was the place of their origin. The Aztecs knew it, and they brought their treasures and buried them up here when the Spanish tried to take them away from them. This, in their lore and their history, is the spot. And we've come to understand from reading the Bible, from petroglyphs, from things here and there, that this is the area where God started. It is also the area where he's finishing the end-time work began in a very small way in Oregon, but he almost immediately moved to Southern California, a city of traffic, of uh, a great bustling city where broadcasting kinds of things were available that weren't available in Oregon. And he built the work in the southwestern United States because Mr. Armstrong said this is the only nation that can finance it. So it had to be here instead of in Israel, the Middle East. Because he thought Israel was where the Garden of Eden was. So he thought that, well, God had to use this nation. Well, go into Genesis 49 and read about all that God does for each of the sons. And Ephraim was going to be the one that was the most profitable. And its vines run over the wall and so on. And this is the most prosperous nation on the face of the earth, has been, uh, up until recently. We, it hasn't been very long ago that we were the greatest creditor nation on earth. More people owed us money on this earth than any other nation. We were the credit card company. They all owed us. And now, in the last three, four decades, we have become the greatest debtor nation on earth. And God told us back in Deuteronomy that we had been the head, but we would become the tail. <laughs> and we're the tail now. Not, not fully so everybody sees it yet, but we got quadrillions of debt out there that we owe other people. Every dollar they hold, you, you recognize, every dollar they hold is just a note of debt. I don't know whether we grasp that principle or not, 
But if we issue a dollar, they are supposed to be able to use that and come claim something for it. So in giving them that dollar, we owe them something. And before, they've been able to come and buy cars and airplanes and war materials and wheat and all kinds of stuff. They've been able to use those debt notes to come and claim something. And now, we don't have any manufacturing much, and they're making jet airplanes in other places, and they're making automobiles better than we are in other places. And it's getting to the point, they're holding these dollars, and they say, we've got all this debt in our hands that America owes us. What are we going to do with it? They don't have anything we can buy. Now, we had an arrangement made where the only thing they could use to buy oil anywhere on earth was with the U.S. dollar. Now, that is being cracked right down the middle, and they're being able to use other currencies to buy oil. And that was the only thing we had left that they could spend that debt that we owed them on. Now, they can't buy much. So that what dollar becomes useless to them. But we were. God gave us the natural resources. And he told us there in Deuteronomy 8, 8, and 7 that the promised land would have everything you need. It would have lots of water, rivers, lakes, streams. It would have iron and brass you could dig from the hills. I've been over this a hundred times. That you wouldn't need anything from anywhere because the promised land had it all. And you go over to Israel and start looking for any of this stuff that we have, and it isn't there. They have no gold. They have no silver. They have no iron. They have no brass. They have one mineral in the whole nation, and that's copper. One little copper mine down by the Gulf of Elat is the only mineral in that whole nation. And they have to get their water from somewhere. They don't have much. It's not the promised land. Never has been, never will be. Why wouldn't God build his church in the right spot? Well, he did. It's just nobody knows it. But this land had everything we needed. Now, that goes on and on, and now I'm kind of losing where I was here. But the Garden of Eden was here. Now that's, yeah, here it comes back. The Garden of Eden was here. Four rivers came out of one spot. Only one place on earth that we've ever heard of or seen where that happens. It's right up here on Cedar Mountain, Navajo Lake. And the waters go underneath and they come out and make four different bodies rivers. I know of no other place anywhere near like that, anywhere on earth. So, and there's lots of gold and silver in the area. One of the biggest silver mines on earth is right here by St. George at Leeds. They shut it down in World War II, but they were taking silver out of there in enormous amounts. Uh, and gold as well. So, all these things add up. Anyway, I think what happened is that the birth of civilization was in this area. And then 
it came time for the flood. And it floated the ark, and the ark bobbed around for quite some time, and probably did come down on Mount Ararat in Turkey. That's where many sightings and people have believed that that's where it is. And I've seen evidence that indicates a shape like that, and they've had pieces of wood and so on. Because after that, where did civilization develop? In the plains of Mesopotamia, east of Turkey, east of that Mount Ararat. And they call that in history the cradle of civilization. I learned that in fourth or fifth grade. And indeed, it was the second cradle of civilization. It had started here. God moved it and said that the area would be desolate for a long time, many generations. So it started over, over there. And that's where the big cities that they've excavated have been found. So they think that's where mankind started, especially in Israel, that the Garden of Eden was there. But there's no rivers. There's nothing, and they can find no evidence ever of climate change in that area. It's always been like it is today. And they've checked growth rings and all kinds of stuff, trying to figure out and gone down through the earth and drilled and tried to find evidence of, of change. And it's just not there. It's just been that way. So, what happened? Mankind began to uh, grow in numbers, and all of the races, through Shem, Ham, and Japheth, were there. So as they grew, we'll see here in a moment, that they moved to different areas on the earth. And then it was separated, and then they had to go by ship to go to different areas of the earth if they wanted to migrate further. But Abram was living, apparently, over in that area where mankind had started over. And I believe uh, that the three races that we see, nature races, were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Shem being the white races, Ham being black, and Japheth being the uh, yellow races. And brown is a mixture of all those three all over the earth. Uh, none better than yet in God's estimation. He made them all, so they're all equally important. Uh, but we've all intermarried back and forth across the earth. That's just what's happened ever since man was here. It even talks about how much of that had occurred, I think, even before the flood, because it said that uh, Noah was of perfect pedigree, in other words, apparently in his line there had not been any intermarriage until him. But his sons must have married wives of the three races. And therefore, the three races came through the flood. And they're listed there in the first table of nations. So it appears that God just simply moved everything over. And I do believe that we're going to have the earth return to one piece of earth again, probably just prior to the millennium. And why do I think that 
at this point. Why would God do that? Well, if you go back to Revelation 21, you'll find that uh, the new heavens and the new earth, the new Jerusalem, if you translate the distances, is about 1,500 miles cubed. The, the base being 1,500 miles square. Well, if this indeed is the location where the original Jerusalem and Zion were, and you put a city measuring 1,500 miles wide, 1,500 miles tall, where we presently sit, it would go out into, from here, eastern Colorado. It would go out into the Pacific Ocean a couple, 300 miles or more. Uh, it would go up into Canada, and it would take in quite a bit of Mexico, three or 400 miles, to get 1,500 miles from this as the center. So if his city is going to be 1,500 miles in measurements, that would mean that you'd need to bring the continents back together, make one piece of ground, and then Jerusalem would be in the center. And all the nations would come up to Jerusalem to keep the feast, I don't know what kind of travel is going to be then. Maybe there will be mass transport of some kind that doesn't pollute the earth. I don't know what God has in mind. But he knows. So that would be required. And another factor that makes it is that he says, out from under his throne, he and the Father and the Son are going to be ruling on the earth in the millennium, and they will be the temple of the new Jerusalem. But he says that the water issuing from under their throne goes out to heal all the nations. Well, if you got all these continents with wide seas between them, how is the rivers going to reach all the nations? Can't be done. They'd just be lost in the ocean. It also says there will be no more sea. Uh, that means salt water. All the water is going to be turned fresh. That's back in Ezekiel. So, it does appear that it was one piece that was divided up, and then God is going to bring it all back together again, because the way he made it at first was very good. And then all kinds of bad things happened, and it's not very good anymore. Even the calendar's not very good anymore. 365 and a quarter days doesn't divide by anything. The original calendar with 360 days was perfect. 12, 30-day months, just like that, one after the other. Never changed. It wasn't hard to keep up with time. You didn't have to calculate holy days. If they were to the 15th day of the... Uh, seventh month was Feast of Tabernacles. But it didn't have to be calculated. You just count. Okay, this is the seventh new moon. We count 15 days and we're there. And that's where we got our circle, the 360 degree compass was 360 days. Very simple. No more. Well, God's going to return it. This isn't all just my speculation. When you look at what he says in the book of Revelation about the 
period of time there we call the Great Tribulation, or we call, no, that's not the one I want, uh, the time that the two witnesses preach. It is called, by Scripture, 1260 days, 42 months of the times of the Gentiles during that, that period of time, and it's also called three and a half years. Now, we've been over this before, but it makes a point. The only way you can have a period of time that is 1260 days, 42 months, and three and a half years is with a 360-day calendar. The math does not work any other way. And God says we're going to have those three periods of time. So he's actually telling us, if you put it together, that he's going to change the calendar back to the way it originally was. And it'll be that way during the millennium. But it isn't too hard to extrapolate that once you look at it and think about it a little bit. That's the way it has to be. Now, how's he going to get there? I don't know for sure. He made some adjustments during the long day of Joshua and Moses. He made an adjustment in the days of Hezekiah when the sundial went back. Uh, did he change it then to 365 and a quarter? That may be the time. The astronomers have looked at it, and they think that those are possibilities. But they recognize it's been changed. Oh, God's just going to change it back. I think he will probably have the church announce it. I might be wrong about that. It is a fact that it's going to happen. But what if it happened today? Would anybody give God credit for it? Not a chance. They say, well, that's just, the heavens just moved. It's just evolution. We're, we're evolving to a better calendar. Whatever. But they wouldn't blame God for it. Or attribute God. At all. Now, what if it was announced a little bit ahead of time? God is going to change the heavens back to 360 days. And you're going to see it. And then a day or two or a month or a year later it happens. Well, we were told that God was going to do this. They still won't credit him. They'll still find some other reason that that would have occurred. Can't be God. But God is going to show everybody on earth who God is. That's what he's going to do. They'll reject God, but they're going to know who he is from many different ways. This just being one of them. So I think we can, we can put some scriptures together and draw a picture, even though it doesn't say it in so many words on some of these things. Because of the conditions that God describes require something different than what we're looking at today. Such as a one-piece earth and a calendar change. Now let's go back into Genesis Verse chapter 10, this is also in First uh, Chronicles 1, gives the table of nations there as well, repeats it. And I don't know that I have time to go through both. These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And out of them were sons born after the flood. Sons of Japheth, that would be the yellow races, 
Gomer, and Magog, and Madai, and Javan. You see a couple of names there already that are fairly familiar to us, because the prophecies talk about a time when Gog and Magog will come up against Israel there in Ezekiel. 38, wherever it is, 39. Uh, and that is the yellow races. Javan is not much different from Japan. So there are still similarities there. Uh, and it gives the sons and then the ones that came from them. Tarshish is mentioned in the prophecies down in verse 4. So you know that they're part of uh, what came down to be Japan or someone near them, Philippines, wherever they all went. It says, by these were the isles of the Gentiles divided in their lands, everyone after his tongue and after their families in their nations. So this is talking about a division of men, as I mentioned earlier, and it was the third generation after Noah, if you count it up here. Uh, but the days of Peleg, when the earth was divided, were in the fifth generation from Noah on. So a different time, speaking of a different division. Now let's get down to verse 6. The son of Ham were Cush and Mitzrayim and Phut and Canaan. These were the black people. And Mitzrayim is one of the sons of Ham. First generation after Ham was Mitzrayim. So when you find Mitzrayim in the Bible, you're talking about a black race of people. So bring that on down to what we were talking about in the last couple of sermons about coming out of Mitzrayim. If you say Egypt, people think of Egypt over in North Africa and a bunch of Arabs running around. So when they make a movie of the Ten Commandments, they show a bunch of Arabs running around with Israel in captivity there. But no, the Bible says Mitzrayim is of Ham. They were black. We were the slaves of black people before we were the slave owners of black people in this country. For 430 years, we were slaves to the black race. Mitzrayim. And every translation where they say Egypt in the King James, every place Egypt is mentioned in the Old Testament, look it up, it's from Mitzrayim. So God identifies. Now, let's keep our finger here and go to Psalms. Um, 78, verse 51. And smote all the firstborn in Mitzrayim, the chief of their strength, in the tabernacles of Ham. So here he ties Ham and Mitzrayim together as the ones who had captivated or enslaved Israel but made his own people to go forth like sheep and guided them in the wilderness like a flock. So, Mitzrayim and Ham mentioned in the same breath in one verse here. 
chapter 105, verse 23. I think David, when he wrote these psalms, knew who he was talking about. 105.23 And Israel also came into Mitzrayim, and Jacob sojourned in the land of Ham, and increased, and so on. Mentions the land of Ham again in verse 27, where God showed signs and wonders. There's the plagues we talked about. Right there. 106.22 Uh Verse 21, they forgot God, their Savior, which had done great things in Mitzrayim, wondrous works in the land of Ham, and terrible things by the Red Sea. No question at all that he's talking about Israel in the land of Ham and Mitzrayim. They were black. Now let's go on back to Genesis 10. Sons of Ham, Cush, Mitzrayim, Put, and Canaan. Where was the land of promise? Where did Joshua lead the people into? The land of Canaan. Over and over and over. They had settled in the original promised land. Now, when the ark landed, if I'm correct, and people began to spread out into the land of Mesopotamia, all the races would have been there. And they found different races there in their archaeological studies. They can't find Israelites in the nation of Israel before 1600 B.C. Now, Israel did visit there and were taken captive there later on, but they were not originally there. But these these cities and so on that they discovered up in the cradle of civilization, Mesopotamia, are indeed there. So all the people came out, and they multiplied, and then they began to leave. And some of the sons of Ham, including Canaan, had come over here and back to where they'd originally come from. They wanted to go back where they had been before the blood occurred. So they came back here. Now, you'll remember the story. I'm not going to read all this. I don't have time anyway. But Abram was told to leave where his father was and to go, and God would show him a city. So, Abraham, or Abram at the time, departed and went to look for this city of God. Well, when he found it, it says in the biblical record, Canaan was living there. Black people. Uh, Ham, Canaan. So, they began to intermarry once Israel was settled with the Canaanites. Now that produces a brownish caste. There were also uh, Orientals who had been here, and there's some evidence that even Genghis Khan was here and buried some of his treasures in the place of the treasure houses of the kings. So there was plenty of opportunity for everybody to intermarry, and Abraham got here, and the Canaanites were dwelling there. And Jerusalem was there, and it was the, the root of the word was, I think it was Jebus at the time. Jebusites had built it. And Abraham came, and God caused him to live there and to take over that area, basically. And there Isaac, Jacob were born, his sons, 
here in this area. Now, they later went into captivity, and God had told us in Deuteronomy 28, after having been in the captivity of Mitzrayim, if we sinned again, he would take us into captivity by ship, ocean-going vessels, ships. Now, that isn't a necessity if you're in the nation of Israel and you want to get a whole bunch of people down to the nation of Egypt today. You could put them on ships and haul them around to the Nile Delta and go up through there through the seaweed and cataracts and you might be able to get them landed somewhere upriver past the Delta. But it would be a whole lot quicker to take a million of them and just march them across to Egypt. It isn't very far. I've driven down there and stepped through the fence into Egypt. I didn't have time to go into this nation, but I wanted to say I'd been there, so I put my foot in. Didn't get shot. But anyway, what God did after we sinned and did what he said we'd do in Deuteronomy, he shipped us out of this nation, across the seas, over to northern Africa, uh, around the Mediterranean, and over time, we then migrated into Western Europe, where most of Israel went. And then when God opened this up after 430 years, he allowed us to come back across the sea to here. And we found a whole bunch of brown people here, because Israel, as a white land, had been taken away. And they'll even tell you in the history of this area that there was a great reduction in population even at one time 1,200 years ago because of drought and people left the area. Weren't here anymore. They used tree circles to show that. Of course, the time they were hauled away I'm talking about was long before that. But there's been upheaval and so on back and forth. And you could use, use to could sail ships here into this area. Even in Cedar City, up at, uh, not Cedar City, but on uh, Bryce Canyon, they got a map up there that wasn't done by anybody who knew the Bible, and it shows seaways going all the way up through Nevada to Canada and on, and east of here all the way to Canada and on. And I just read yesterday about, I was looking up the Severe River and a couple of things, and it says that there had been a seaway right up through what we now call Great Basin National Park, and Lake Bonneville came all the way down. And this land has been raised so that the sea no longer comes in here. I think it's going to be lowered again here at the end, and you'll be able to come in here uh, with ships. They found the Phoenician ship by the Salton Sea in California that there's no way it could have gotten there unless you could come on up through Baja, California, by ship at that time. There's just so much evidence around. But anyway, it becomes important to understand who Mithraim is. It was the black people. Cush begat Nimrod. He began to be a mighty one. Now, that was one of the sons of Ham through Cush, his grandson. He was a mighty hunter against the eternal, it should say. 
And he began to build the Tower of Babel, and God divided the peoples and nations at that time. Now, verse 11 is interesting. Out of that land went forth Asher and builded Nineveh. Now, if you go on down, you will find that uh, Asher was from Shem, a Semitic person, but he was living in the land of Nimrod of the black people. And then he went from there. The Bible makes a parenthetical note. Went from there to build Nineveh. So Asher, the Assyrian, was Semitic or white. So when we start looking at the nations today, and it says that the Assyrian is the rod of God's anger, and he's going to punish modern day, and take modern day Israel, our nation, into captivity, then we know that it has to be white folks, because they were from Shem through Asher, and lived among Nimrod, and moved out and built Nineveh. So that's the Nineveh that is being spoken of in history that Jonah went to, and he didn't want them to repent, he wanted them destroyed, because they were to be the ones who took Israel captive. And in the end time, they are as well. So, God calls the Assyrian the king of the north. The land of the north. And he calls them the Assyrian. Well, Herbert Armstrong thought that was Germany during World War I and World War II because they were whooping up on Israel and he thought it was the end of the age. And that Germany was in the Assyrian. Well, I think it's turned out the Germany is probably mostly Danite, who was biting at the heels of his brothers in Europe, uh, as God said Dan would do during World War One and Two. Now we are faced with a totally different ballgame. Germany is nothing militarily, and even financially they're about to go under with, with the rest of Israel. But Russia has the nukes. Russia has the power. And they're the right color to be the Assyrian. And guess where they are? The north. So it all fits the Bible. People are so worried about the Chinese. Well, the Chinese are going to be involved, I firmly believe. But Russia is going to be the one that leads that coalition of nations against America. Psalm 83 gives you a lot of different peoples that will be involved in taking over America. It'll be kind of like NATO of the Gentiles against Israel instead of NATO of Israel against the Gentiles. It's going to be reversed. The Gentiles are all coming after the Israelites. God set it up that way. Now let's go on down here and understand when Joshua led the people into the Promised Land. Where was it? The land of Canaan. Go to the book of Joshua. It's all through there. The land of Canaan. Well, who was Canaan? Well, we saw that they came down from Ham. And uh, let's go down through a list here. Mitzrium, in verse 13, begat Ludim and Anamim and Lehabim and not to him. My eyes are a little blurry, excuse me. Uh, but 
Out of one of those in verse uh, 14 came Philistine. So now we know what color the Philistines were. You never saw a movie that showed them black out of Hollywood. No. They're in the line of Ham. So the Philistines were black people. And you go on down and you see some of the traditional enemies of Israel that were in the land of Canaan. You go to, I think it's Joshua 5, I wrote it down. Joshua 3, 4. Yeah, I guess it's 3, 4. It talks about the Hittite, the Hivite, the Perizzite, the Girgashite, the Amorite, the Jebusite, and so on, were the ones inhabiting the land of Canaan. So when they crossed the Jordan here, they went into Canaan. So it was all these black tribes that had been there before Abram got there, remember. He got there and the Canaanites were there. So then Israel got taken into captivity, and when Abram came there, there were the Canaanites. When Moses stopped short of it and sent Joshua in, there were the Canaanites. They were still there. And God said he would drive them out. But those are the ones that you see all through the story. Is the Jebusite, the Amorite, the Gergesite, the Hivite, anything mostly with an eye after it, were black people. Now, let's throw a couple other things in there I find quite interesting. The book, the uh, town of Jericho, that they marched around and the walls fell. That's where the spies had gone and where Rahab the harlot had hidden them up on top of the house among the sheaves. That was a black city. Rahab the harlot was probably, more than likely, in her family, a black family. You probably never thought of Rahab as being a black woman. But she was a Canaanite. And her family was, and that's what was there. Now, what implication does that have? Some people who think Israel is far superior to any of the Gentile nations. Well, she's listed in Hebrews 11 as one of the faithful who will be in the kingdom of God as part of the 144,000. They have the black harlot. Now, let's take this one step further. David married who? Illegally. Bathsheba. Who was she the wife of? Uriah the Hittite. It was not Uriah the Israelite. Hittite is one of the black peoples here listed. The Hittites. Uh, listed there in First Chronicles and Joshua... Book 3 and verse 4. The Hittites. So, Uriah was a Hittite, a black man, who was living in Israel, had amalgamated with them, and was fighting in the war for Israel. What color was Bathsheba then? Uriah was black. Had he married an Israelite woman, or had he married a Hittite woman? No idea. <laughs> Could have been either. But Bathsheba's son Solomon was in the lineage of Israel's kings and in the lineage of Christ. 
Does this stuff make any difference? I think so. Pretty important to understand the origin of the races and what happened with them. Now, um, Solomon was not blood kin to Uriah. He was blood kin to David and Bathsheba. And it is possible, living in Israel, that Uriah had married an Israelite woman. So I'm not saying Solomon was half black. I don't know that. And I don't even necessarily suspect that. Because there was a lot of intermarriage between the Canaanites, the black race, and the white race at that time. An awful lot of it. So, when you read in the Bible then, once you go through this, and in the prophecies, you see prophecies about these different peoples, you know where they're from. Where is this thing about... Uh, Japheth, verse 2 of chapter 10, Magog and Jabin, I pointed out. Well, uh, Magog and Meshach are words that may have been, the Moscow may be a corruption of. No, it's not, no, it's not the one I wanted. The Magog that's spoken of in Ezekiel and other places that will come against Israel is from the yellow races. That's, that's the point I wanted to make in Japheth. So they have to be in the east. But they're coming too. But the Assyrian is the rod of God's anger. And I think that we can state almost emphatically at this point that that's Russia and those people who came from Shem. Well, let's don't go through any more of that. We're down to almost time. Another point. How many times have you seen the River Nile in a movie about Egypt and Israel? Did you have any idea that the word Nile does not appear in the Bible anywhere? not even in there. Nile River is not in the Bible. There's only one place that a waterway associated uh, is where it calls the tongue of the Mitzrayim Sea, tongue of the Egyptian Sea. And Mitzrayim is not black. That is, Egypt of the day is not black. Mostly Arabs. And have been for a long, long way back. So where's the Nile? It's over here. Is where it is. Uh, because Egypt was over here. All these peoples started here. They multiplied here. And then they were either taken or driven out to other places. Go down through Central and South America. They have huge cities that were built by black people. They have rocks there huge things that can hardly be moved that have pictures of faces on them. I can't forget what they call them, those rocks. Uh, I heard it. No, uh, name for them. Uh, but they have Negroid features, Hamitic features. 
So it's very clear there was a huge black presence in South America, even though it's basically all brown today. And they also went to Africa. People moved around quite a bit. And I'm not here to say I know every movement of every people, where they went and how they went. But they moved around over the face of the earth. <laughs> and there's very clear evidence that black people were here. There's clear evidence that yellow people were here. And even some of the Eskimos still show some of the yellow genes. But you will find... In Navajo women, they've done some DNA tests, and these people have DNA from uh, Shem from Israel, right out here in the reservation. I mean, going way back. Where did they get that? Well, it's been there since Israel was originally here, intermarried with Ham, and intermarried with Japheth, and produced a brown race. So when Israel was taken captive, God left the brown races that had intermarried here. And when Israel came back, that's what they found. But the DNA shows Israelite blood. So the whole circle comes back here, is the point. And we need to understand when the black people start telling us, well, you made us slaves. Well, it was black people that sold the black people to the traders who brought them here and we bought them. <coughs> yeah, we did make them slaves. And I'm sorry, we did. But we were slaves of black people for 430 years. You need to revise those colors you saw in the different movies from Hollywood who don't know anything about anything. And you have to go here to find out who Mitzrayim was. So when I was reading that, I would I'd go back and forth, because it says Egypt, it's easier to say, but it's not correct. Every place that Egypt is mentioned is translated from the word Mitzrayim. Mitzrayim came right down from Ham directly. So we know now that it was black and white in Mitzrayim, not Egypt. It was only later on that when he took us by ship and we went to North Africa and the Middle East and then migrated up. And the Assyrians did the same thing. They were on the plains of Mesopotamia, built Nineveh and so on, and later on migrated up into Russia, where they are today. Now there are probably some of them scattered through Poland and Czechoslovakia, Ukraine, and Eastern Europe. And who knows where all, because people move around. But, the, but those people as a whole moved up there. And we know in the prophecies it says that the king of Assyria, there in Isaiah 10, I think it is, uh, doesn't know it, but it, in his, it is in his heart to cut off nations, not a few. And I look at Putin and I think, who is that guy? There are a lot of opinions about Putin. Some think he is nothing but KB, KGB butcher who is only walking on the earth to kill people. There are other things, others who think he's a pretty good Christian uh, through the Russian Orthodox Church, and he's a good man. 
Now, that's two totally divergent opinions of Putin. <laughs> and, and there are opinions all in between there about the man. And I have mixed feelings about him. But he is the current leader of Assyria. And God says the king of Assyria is going to be the one, primarily, who comes against us with his coalition of other nations. But he'll lead it. So I look at Putin and I see he has some pretty good qualities in some ways. And I see other ways where he appears to be ruthless. But he thinks of himself as a good person. He never thought of himself as a good person, too. And so of others who are just as bad. So he doesn't know it is in his heart to cut off nations, not a few. Mostly Israelite nations. That's the ones that they're ganging up on right now. Because of the sanctions and so on. So the whole thing is shaping up just as God said. I've covered a lot of territory here, but I... I wanted to start with, why is Mitzrayim important? What difference does it make whether we say Egypt or Mitzrayim? Because they're totally different peoples from totally different areas of the world. And they were here when we were in captivity to the sons of Ham. And David knew that. David was very aware Uriah was a black man. <laughs> very aware that his wife was white or black whichever she was, probably white, I would guess, because of the line of Christ. But people have said, well, the line of Christ had to be strict Israel. Maybe. Maybe not. I don't know whether you can actually prove that or not. Because to God, it doesn't matter. Rahab's black harlot is going to be in the kingdom of God. It's one of the 144,000 bride of Christ. That being the case, you and I have a chance. So does Mitzrayim. So does Japheth in the second resurrection. God is going to give everybody an opportunity of salvation, and color matters not. And mixture of colors matters not. To God, it means nothing. It is only to people that it means something. And if we are the people of God, color should come to mean nothing to us. Conversion into being a spiritual Israelite is the only thing that matters. Color means nothing. That's why when the remnant comes, we're going to have people of every race on earth, more than likely. At least where the gospel went and people were called. I know the three major races will be here. And all three races are sitting here today, mixed in among us. What all we got in us. But God loves all people. He created the races himself. So he didn't create one to be despised and another loved. He wanted to work through Abram because Abram was a man who obeyed him. And there were very few of those around. So he said, okay, I will make Abraham a race, and I will use them as an example to the rest of the world of someone who will obey me. But then Israel betrayed God, 
and went whoring after other nations, and God in Israel became an epithet to different peoples. And today, this nation of Ephraim and other tribes of Israel mixed in is hated almost universally. We don't like to think that. As Americans, we think we're so lovable. But most of the world hates us. And when it comes time to whoop up on America, they're going to join in. So know who you came from. Know who you were a slave to. Know who's coming to enslave you again. And it's not going to be essentially Ham this time, as it was before, Mitzrayim. This time it's going to be uh, Japheth and Jim, the Syrian, and all of those who join with them, some of the Arabs as well. Well, we're out of time, so let's quit there. Now, dinner at 6.30 tonight, and the service tomorrow evening is at 7, and no trip to Jerusalem.